Welcome to the Tomes and Tropes podcast, where books and friendships collide. I'm Becca. And I'm Carrie. And we're two friends who love to talk about books. Today we are talking about The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Part 2. As usual, we are giving a content warning before each episode. This book is classified as a young adult dystopian novel, but it is rated PG-13. Because of this classification, our content while discussing this book will also be rated PG-13. I do want to mention that this book was surprisingly graphic when I was reading it through the first time, so we're going to try to keep the graphic content to a minimum, but we will give warnings before it approaches if it does in this episode. With that, we will not be spoiling any future chapters in this book other than the ones we are covering in this episode. So for this episode, we will be covering chapters 11 through 20. However, this episode will have spoilers for any of the books from the original trilogy as well as any movies from the original trilogy. So if you haven't read or watched any of those, what are you doing? Go away. Now it's time for our one-sentence summaries, where we summarize each chapter we are going over in in this episode in one sentence. In this episode, like Carrie said, we will be talking about chapters 11 through 20, also known as Part 2, The Prize. Chapter 11. Snow starts thinking of how to help Lucy Gray win and hunts for a guitar so she can sing in the interviews, but is distracted by Dr. Gall's assignment to write about what they liked about the war. Chapter 12. Snow comes to terms that Lucy Gray is probably going to die, and jealousy over an old boyfriend is useless. So he decides to give her his mom's compact and make sure that she knows that she matters to him beyond just a mentee. And then we have the kiss. Chapter 13. The kiss left Snow giddy, but only for a moment, as the next morning opened the 10th annual Hunger Games, where everyone was surprised by the opening shot, Marcus hanging in the arena. Chapter 14. The first tributes to die in the arena are Marcus and Dill, and Marcus's death is upsetting most people, but as the day concludes, Coriolanus goes home to find an upset mall where they see where Sejanus is in the arena. Chapter 15. With Sejanus in the arena, his, quote, best friend Snow comes to the rescue and convinces him that he needs to leave, but not before meeting some tributes on their way out. Chapter 16. Snow and Sejanus make it out of the arena, but Snow has killed Bobbin, and then the plinth prize is offered, which gives a full ride to the university to the mentor whose tribute wins the games. Chapter 17. Jessup goes after Lucy Gray in the arena due to rabies, and Lysistrata's companionship saves the day by ascending in water and food to save Lucy Gray, but the relief only lasts for the walk home because a tax letter comes to the penthouse and Snow is left to comfort Tigress. Chapter 18. Reaver has used the Panem flag to cover the dead bodies of the tributes, and then Snow puts the handkerchief that Lucy Gray used in the snake tank thinking that they could potentially be used in the games. Chapter 19. Snow's paranoia about the handkerchief and his need for money leads him to the plinths, where he is fed to the brim the night before the audience is shown Dr. Galt's surprise snakes being dispensed into the arena. Chapter 20. Lucy Gray has won the 10th annual Hunger Games. After celebrating shortly, Coriolanus is sent to the lab where he finds Teen Highbottom, where the handkerchief and his mother's compact are sitting, and he has no choice but to sign up as a peacekeeper. Ooh, that was okay. a lot. Before we get to anywhere, I just have <laughs> to say to our listeners, you could not see me, but I said, and it's only going to happen once, and this is why I got to highlight it. I said <laughs> Lysistrata's name, like, no practice. I just read it, and my brain was like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, and I said it. And I got through it, and I was just so happy. So I just had to, had to throw that out there for our listeners. I'm so proud of you. Harry I was, was like, yes. <laughs> I was trying not to laugh, but you did great. And I've been practicing, and I probably still would have messed it up. It's a hard name. A you beautiful did, name. You did so good. I feel like the names in this book were doomed <laughs> for anybody who has to talk about them, because they are tongue twisters if i've ever mm. seen them thank goodness for the audiobook yes thank goodness i'd be lost Ooh. okay now it's time for our initial thoughts and reactions to part two so much happened in part two 
was basically the whole like Hunger Games of like the 10th annual Hunger Games, which is crazy because like in the original trilogy, the Hunger Games and Catching Fire, it felt like the actual like games portion was such a large part of the book. I feel like and I haven't read um, book one or two in a while, to be honest, but um I did watch the movies in preparation for this episode and like the actual being in the arena is a good chunk of of those um those movies and those books. Um this book has been interesting because with that said, you know, the Hunger Games it's it's not like this story is the story of the Hunger Games like I feel like the other the other books are. I feel like we're really getting a progression and a journey of Coriolina Snow and his his growth and his maturation and his changing into who we know and maybe love sometimes as our big bad <laughs> presidents now, right? And I don't mind. Something else that I thought was really interesting about this book was that the romance happens here very quickly like very like over the course of I think it's like a week and a half max I have to go back and do some more book math on how quickly (laughs) they turn they go into the arena because I know the games constantly get delayed so um or they've got they got delayed twice for a couple days so I think it's right at either a week or a week and a half between the time Snow met her at the train station and the start of the the games, right? So the romance here, I think, is so interesting because it's not too much romance, right? But it is there. And Lucy Gray and Snow are such big personalities (laughs) that, like, it kind of makes sense because I remember in high school and, like, how fast you form a crush and, like, they... Like, and that's under normal circumstances, right? Like, these two characters are going through such a traumatic time and are under a lot of pressure and their fates are directly tied. So, of course, they're going to, like, have this budding romance and they're they're young. Like, Snow is 18 and I think, I don't remember how old Lucy Gray is, do you? Mm, No. Uh, But I don't think she can be older than 18, right? No, she's probably, she's probably 17, 16 to 18. Yeah. I'll have to look. Yeah. But it kind of makes sense, you know, under the circumstances, like they're both kind of, they're both in high school. Like I get it. I, when I first read through it, I was like, you know, this, this really did happen really fast after further thought. I don't. I don't think it happened as fast Mm -hmm. or I guess I understand why it probably did happen as fast. Lastly, Lucy Gray is our winner of the 10th annual Hunger Games. We love (laughs) to see that. However, I do believe that this book has a lot of foreshadowing and I haven't really been surprised by any of the big reveals so far that have Mm -hmm. been in the book. That's just one criticism I would have is I haven't been super surprised by anything yet. And I guess we'll see uh, that like when we go over part three. But um, I do I would say that's a close criticism for me for this book. That makes sense. Yeah. So my initial reactions and thoughts. So I felt like the first five to six chapters of this part were pretty boring, but What's funny is actually my quotables are mostly about the first five to six chapters. So my <laughs> my mind must have been changed during the audiobook time. But I I would agree with you, Becca, that a lot of the big reveals I wasn't surprised about. Like Lucy Gray winning, I was like, that's the only thing that makes sense. So, I mean, you have snow lands on top the entire book. So you just assume yeah. that he's going to win. He and Lucy Gray. So the only big reveal I was super surprised about was the whole peacekeeper thing. Like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I couldn't believe Snow was going to be a peacekeeper. I was reading this on an airplane on the way back from Thanksgiving, and I was in the middle seat, tucked in between two strangers, so I couldn't really move, but I read this part, and I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) 
and I was just like mouthing like and I wrote in my Kindle like what the heck and like a bunch of exclamation points because I couldn't like do anything else in that moment but I think this whole part two was super crucial for our understanding of Snow and his development and I think yeah. that this without this part I wouldn't have loved part three as much and we'll talk about part three obviously next episode but you ready for a meet cute segment ready so i know we've met lucy gray this entire book but we're gonna save her meet cute for part three and i think we'll understand why i just wanted to let the listeners know this my like thought behind this so we're gonna meet some characters that maybe aren't as like main characters but are I think important to the story so the first one we're gonna meet is Festus Creed Festus and Snow have known each other since birth and we're good friends he is also a mentor for the female tribute from District 4 who is Coral Festus to me is a bit of a complex character who feels things pretty deeply like for example when he finds out about Arachne he is like brought to tears but he doesn't mind violence if directed at the districts. So I feel like he he feels things very deeply for the people he cares about, but not so much about other people. For example, another example from part two, he wants Clemencia to feed Reaper and he finds it cool that she does not. And then also breaks down and cries about Arachne's death again. And then on the other hand, he recommended that the capital citizens be punished if they didn't watch the games by being sent to the districts. So he's like, he could be pretty tough, but I also think he's probably a big teddy bear inside. (laughs) We don't get to know too much about him, but I just thought he was an interesting character. Yeah. Here we go. I'm going to mess this up, this name. Lysistrata, Vickers, maybe. Nice. Apologies. Okay. (laughs) All those times of practice. Here we go. So she was assigned Jessup, who was the male tribute from District 12. Jessup saved her life by throwing his body over hers when the arena was bombed in part one and did as much as she could to help Jessup before the games. I think she was just a really over, like, deeply caring person. Um, She seems to really care for Clemencia and how she has been since Clemencia has been in the hospital and missing, like, nobody knows where she is. Hmm. So Lysistrata and Coriolanus become allies similarly to their tributes and they protect lucy gray when jessup who becomes overtaken by rabies tries to kill lucy gray our third meet cute i love this character one of my favorite characters ma plin so we really get to meet ma here in chapter 12 after lucy gray's interview ma just seems like the person you just want to come home to like the motherly figure like She's got the soup going. She's got, like, she'll have coffee for you and fresh pastries. Like, I just want to go home to Mopland, like, after a long day. Like, I just want her to, like, you know, sit with me and give me motherly advice. Like, I love Ma. I think she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And she, like, really goes above and beyond and tells Snow that whatever he may need, that she would want to help him. She just wants to feed him and make sure he's taking care of him and his family. I feel for her so much because she's just someone who was forced into a life in the capital that is so different from the one that she came in from District 2. She cooks phenomenally, we are told several times in this part, and I truly believe that she cares for her son and his friend deeper than Snow deserves. I think that comes back to bite her eventually. All right. Reaper Ash is our final meet cute. So I love Reaper. District 11's male tribute who apologized for having to kill the other tributes and that when he was the victor, he said he would take revenge on the capital. So his mentor is Clemencia and his he she always thought his name was super ironic since he was raped, which I mean is a little bit laughable. I mean, it's very ironic. But mm-hmm. during the games, Reaper has lined up each dead tribute's body and then covered them with the flag of Panem. This is one of my favorite parts of the book. Like, makes me cry every time. 
but it's just one of the most iconic and heartbreaking and revolutionary scenes in the book. And I think it like his act of doing that reminds me a lot of when Katniss covers Rue with the flowers and like yeah. makes a little just a remembrance of her. So I think that that's why it stood out to me the most. But I just love Reaper. I cannot wait to see this in the movie. I think everyone assumed Reaper would be the winner or runner-up because of his muscular build, but we saw that he was a big softie who was just angry which the with the capital, which was super impactful. I love Reaper. That's so funny that you love him so much because I, like, when I was reading through this book, I did not like him at all. Like, uh. I was like, this guy is arrogant and smug and just whatever, and I just did not like him. And it's <laughs> so funny to me that you liked him so much. And, like, hearing this, it, I, I get it because I I do... I do see that, but that was not my impression of Reaper at all. <laughs> and I think, like, I struggled with him, like, in part one, went in part, like, early part two. Like, I had those feelings a little bit. Mm. But I was like, I feel like he's more complex and will act differently. And I was right. And I, I just loved him. Up next, we have our quotable section where we talk about notable quotes and parts that are important throughout the book. As a reminder, we go through these chronologically. So we will start with any from chapter 11 and go through the end of this part to chapter 20. All right. So first up, I'm going to give a warning. I did a lot from chapter 11. So here's the quote. We control it, he said quietly. This is Snow talking. If the war is impossible to end, then we have to control it indefinitely, just as we do now, with the peacekeepers occupying the districts, with strict laws, and with reminders of who's in charge, like the Hunger Games. In any scenario, it's preferable to have the upper hand, to be the victor rather than be defeated. I've probably said this a hundred times, but Snow has such a specific view of the district slash capital relationship and what that should be like which is that the capital should have control. Like, that's, like, the key word is control. So he he always feels like the capital has to have that control over everyone, all the districts. So I wanted to bring this up. And in the Hunger Games movie specifically, we because we, I don't think it's in the book because we don't get Snow's point of view. We only get Katniss's, if mm. I'm remembering correctly. I think so, yeah. So he's talking to Seneca Crane after Katniss shoots the bow into the apple that the pig is holding mm -hmm. and gives him her like a score of 11, which is super high. Mm -hmm. So Snow's a little upset about this, as we can expect. But he tells him, hope, it is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. And I think this shows how he thinks about control even later on in his life. Like he can control the hope that people have in the districts. So even though we don't get this perspective in the Hunger Games book specifically, I think it's a good thing to point out as we look at Younger Snow. I like that a lot. And I think it's funny that conversation between him and Seneca Crane has so much parallels or have so many parallels with his conversations with Dr. Gall. So it's so interesting to see like Dr. Gall's theories and things that he was taught in this mentorship class that they're going through have like shaped him so much throughout the course oh of the book. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's such a great point. I always forget like how much impact Dr. Gall has on his mindset and developing like I think it's already there for him like he understands this at his core but like it pushes beyond that when Dr. Gall like kind of pushes him to think about things more and leads yeah. him into the answer that she thinks so again in chapter 11 I have another quotable after so finds a guitar for Lucy Gray that she can borrow from Pluribus? 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 Pluribus. <laughs> I'm bad with names. Pluribus and Snow. They're actually talking about how he hopes that he can open his club back up one day and state and Snow states that he will be a steady cup customer. And Pluribus replies, 
quote, just like your father. When he was about your age, he used to close down this place every night with that rascal Casca high bottom. This one I underlined, highlighted, noted. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Like, I was like, wait, wait, wait. I, they were friends? So it seems like Casca and Crassus, Snow's dad, were actually really good friends. And I feel like that was one of the things I wasn't expecting in mm. the book. I felt like they probably had like a complicated relationship, like where they were mm, really like enemies kind of, but like they like were competitive enemies almost. That's how I was thinking about it when yeah, I read it. Like rivals. Yeah, rivals. Thank you. It seems impossible that they were friends knowing how Casca treats Coriolanus and how he's so strict with him. I would really love to speculate why, but I think we'll learn about this more in part three. So a few pages later in my, at least in my Kindle, my Kindle's kind of tiny, so there's a lot of pages, but <laughs> Snow is thinking about this statement because he is just learning this for the first time too because he had no idea as well as we did, obviously, since we're learning things as Snow learns them. Mm. But Snow comes to the conclusion that his friendship must not have ended well. And I was just really shocked to hear this and wonder how that will play into the understanding how High Bottom treats Snow. Our next quotable is from chapter 11 as well. I guess we really loved chapter 11. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, but the quote is, she took her time tuning the instrument and then played song after song, seemingly as starved for the music as for the meals he brought. And this is, this is happening when Snow finds a guitar for Lucy Gray to play. And they're in this classroom and just kind of like, working on what she's going to be doing on the, for the interview. And this is his observation of her. And I love this quote so much because both Carrie and I have so many connections to music in our, like, growing up. Like, for and I can let Carrie speak to herself, too, on this, but I grew up in band throughout middle school and high school. And, like, I've been out of that world for a long time. But I still crave the making of the music. Like I still mm. crave that piece of like something I'm doing is create. It, it's a creative process. And I just, I love that. I mentioned in our last episode, but I think that Lucy Gray, like the music is more special to her because it's been her way to communicate her entire life. So mm. We find out in part two that her music is the way she sends messages, like the example of like the song that she sings is the message back to the um, the Covey in District 12 in the interview. And it's also the way she expresses herself and the way we as readers are able to see her inner thoughts that's outside of Snow's perspective, right? Mm. It's outside of his perception of her too. So I feel like the music in this part is just so intentional that it is really we we get the words directly from her mouth in a way that we wouldn't get if we were just listening to a conversation with her and Stowe. Mm, that's such a good point. But I think this is a really common theme in Pan Am in general is that the ability to communicate is taken away from people all the time. And I go back and think about the A boxes with their tongues taken out and they can no longer speak. And then Lucy Gray as a tribute has her music taken away from her, which is her way to communicate. I think they also force people to communicate that don't want to. And I think like Katniss is a perfect example of that. She was forced to communicate in a way that she didn't want to. And I think PETA is also a prime example mm. of that because in The Mockingjay, when he's been, it, I think they call it hijacked, um, when he's been hijacked into thinking that Katniss is the villain, he is communicating in those interviews but he doesn't want to be like you can see like the strain on his face so I, I just think communication and the control going back to control for this is just so important but I think beyond just the ability to communicate I think music is so healing overall mm -hmm. 
And I think in this instance, what we're seeing is Lucy Gray, quote, healing and getting comfort from something that she has gotten comfort from her whole life because that's that's what music is, right? So I have I a question that. for Carrie here. Ooh. So it says the quote describes like she was starved for the music. What is something that you would, quote, be starved for if it was taken away from you? I could pick like three things. So I think okay. I'm going to pick my one, though. Just one. But I think I'm going to be basic and say music specifically. I'm going to say specifically like movie scores slash like classical music because that like gets me through the day. Like when I'm working, I just have that going. I have like Harry Potter soundtrack and like all these like my favorite soundtracks in one playlist. And without that, if I had that taken away from me forever, I would starve for it. So, like, if I'm, like, in too many meetings and I don't have it, I'm like, ah, I need it. <laughs> so, I would say that. What about you? I'm curious. So, I'm actually going to say, like, the ability to learn. For me, like, growth is so important and it doesn't have to be up the ladder, but I need to be learning something new. I I hate being stagnant. So just like if I wasn't given the opportunity to learn and grow, like that I would be starved for that. I would be like dying to figure out if there's uh-huh. something else I can I can learn or become an expert in. And like if that was taken away, I that would be so difficult for me. I get that. Also, I really like how you said the communication piece of the music, because mm. I think that plays a lot into the trilogy, too. Like, you see that a lot when Katniss sings, like, Deep in the Meadow to Primrose before the reaping and to comfort yeah. her, and then the hanging tree in Mockingjay, I believe. Mm-hmm. Just like a lot of different times where she uses music to communicate herself, even though she's not a performer, she's not like a musician. So I think District 12 probably used this past, these past songs that the Covey probably taught them and kept the tradition going. So I think that's cool. Okay, another chapter 11 one. <laughs> we'll get out of here eventually, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Lucy Gray is talking and she says, quote, well, you know what they say, the show's not over until the Mockingjay sings. And Coriolanus asks if the Mockingjay sings in her show and she replies, quote, not my show, sweetheart, yours, the capitals anyway. And I just thought this one I could talk about forever. I had to point this out because this is where we first hear about the Mockingjay, I believe, if if it said it before. I think so. Please correct me. I think we we learn about Jabberjays, but not Mockingjay specifically. I agree because he. I think he comes back and says, like, you must be making things up or something. Okay, cool. This is the future symbol of the Rebellion, so I think that's like... Well done, Suzanne Collins. Anyways, with the quote, not my show, sweetheart, yours, the capitals anyway, there are two things I want to point out about this section. One, the sweetheart. This just word was very Hamish of her. And I just love that little like nod to a District 12 Hamish. Like, and like, it definitely could be like a district hall culture thing. You know how like Southerners will be like, y'all, and yeah. they do use sweetheart a lot. Like, bless your oh, heart. Bless your heart, sweetheart. <laughs> or something like that. Like, no hate. So <laughs> I just think this was a very like, I just thought it was very Haymitch of her. And I was like, oh, I love you, Haymitch. Thanks for coming into our book, even though you're not here. I just thought that was really, I just love my guy, Hamish. So next, I wanted to point out that she says that it is the capital show. I think while the games were not really meant to entertain, so to speak, it definitely turned into that. 
And we know that Katniss and Peeta do put on a show for the Capitol with their supposed love story, which was arguably one of the main reasons they were successful. So I think as the Hunger Games moved on to when we get to meet Katniss and Peeta in their Hunger Games, there are probably a lot of like, it becomes the Capitol show, like The Bachelor every week, you know, like people are looking forward to it. All right. We are out of chapter 11. We did it. (laughs) okay so in chapter 12 there is this quote it says silly old man with his ridiculous powdered wig and his decrepit cat what did he know about anything Coriolanus was about to set the record straight when satira appeared and whispered in his ear i think that prize is in the bag and he let it go okay Mm. So on the last episode of this podcast, I talked about how there's really only one character that was introduced to us in a somewhat positive light, and that was Clemencia. In part two, we are introduced to Pluribus Bell, or I guess reintroduced because we get a little piece of him, but it's more of a flashback in part one. Yeah. So the first time we see him, like, I don't really count as an introduction. I feel like this is really where we're introduced. And he has by far the most positive introduction of any other character in this book. And it is even said that he is the only or one of the only people that Snow can let his guard down around because he actually understands the Snow's position and pretending with him would be a moot point, but not Mm -hmm. just a moot point. Like, Pluribus has never made them feel any better or worse because of the position that they're in i love that so um this quote happens right after lucy gray sings her song at the interview that makes Coriolanus jealous because it's referring to the old lover she has in district 12 and pluribus comes up to him and says something positive about lucy gray now what pluribus does not say is something positive about snow it's only lucy gray and This is the first instance that Pluribus is described in a negative light. And actually, you know, it's not even a negative light. It's like a negative darkness in this instance because he's described as like senile with ridiculous and unintelligent. And I think it's also funny that he talks about the decrepit cat (laughs) because cat like a decrepit cat i think is almost word for word how katniss describes <gasps> the cat in the prim's cat in the original hunger games so that's i just so true. i just think that's so funny and i wanted to throw that in there because it was it just made me laugh but i think this is interesting this this change in in viewpoint from snow is interesting because This is right in the height of Snow's jealousy, right, over the song. And I, (laughs) listeners, you're going to get a little piece of this, but I am a jealous person. I am, I'm very jealous. I fully admit that it's something I'm working on, but I totally get Snow being jealous in this instance. And I totally get him being annoyed. I'm not saying it's right. Right. I'm I'm not saying it's correct or that he should have been annoyed, but I am saying that I get it. And when all you see is that green envy, that's like, that's all your brain can think about. You're like body is sweating. Like your face is pale. Like <laughs> all this stuff that's going on, like physiologically with your body when you're jealous, it's hard to differentiate between friend and foe. However, I think the most interesting part here is that Pluribus doesn't get redeemed. And that's so interesting that he, Snow, is just like, okay, like, I'm jealous. Like, he he, he acknowledges that he's jealous, right? But he doesn't acknowledge that the jealousy is what's causing his change in point of view for other people. And just because Pluribus made one mistake, which honestly really wasn't a mistake like he complimented lucy gray like how how is that a mistake from pluribus but he was given a permanent red card from coriolanus and it never got taken away so Mm. i just think that's super interesting if carrie loved chapter 11 but i love (laughs) chapter 12 because we have another quote from chapter 12 and i actually cut one of them that i wanted to talk about so we were supposed to have three we only have two But 
this quote is from Tigris, and it says, Then be kind, Corio, she snapped, and try not to look down on people who had to choose between death and disgrace. Mm. Ooh, I read this and got chills because, I don't know, I'll, I'll explain it in a second, but we get a lot more of Tigris in part two, and I am here for it. I love that she has this older sister role, even though they're cousins, and she's always trying to protect Corio, like always. We see this from the very first chapter of this book when she comes back and has the shirt for him for the reaping day. And the rose he gave to Lucy Gray was her idea. She constantly is sending Lucy Gray extra food, a favorite food, the bread pudding. Tigress also washes Lucy Gray's dress for her, and she is just constantly looking out for Corio and, by extension, Lucy Gray. However, in this instance, I think we get to see a sliver of just how much protection she offered. This This quote is in conversation with Snow, and Snow is asking her opinion about what she thought of Lucy Gray's song, and she's still... Snow is still in the height of his jealousy at this point. Um, It may have gone down a little bit, but it's pretty close. And Tigress is defending Lucy Gray. And we don't know exactly what she means by this, but we can assume that some untoward actions occurred based on the progression of Snow's thoughts in in this section. And... I honestly, like, I fell in love with Tigress as a character in this stretch of chapters because we we see that she is somebody who hasn't let the hard times they experience take away her kindness, right? And I don't know if you can argue the same thing for everybody else in the Capitol, and I certainly can tell you that's not the same for the Grandmam and for Coriolanus, mm-hmm. but she still retains her kindness and her gentleness even throughout the hard times. Even, like, every other character here except maybe Pluribus, and I would even argue that Pluribus did not have it as hard. Um, well, actually, I'm going to take that back because <laughs> Pluribus did lose lose his partner, so I'm going to take that back. But Tigress still actively looks for the beauty in the situations instead mm-hmm. of just letting them come to her, and I think that's really admirable. Oh, Tigress. What's the most sad about this to me, though, is not that Tigress had to choose the disgrace, whatever that actually means, right? And we can use our imaginations there. But what's the most sad is the fact that Snow just shuts down and decides that he doesn't want to know what she means. Mm -hmm. Like, he almost takes this position of, if I don't know about it, I guess it didn't really happen, and chooses not to ask and find out exactly what she means, and that was just, like, so heartbreaking for me because, like, when I go through hard times, I want to have somebody else carry my burdens with me. And that's such an important part of being a human and having friends and having a community around you. And we never get to see that Tigress has this community and Snow mm-hmm. certainly is not stepping up to the plate. That just broke my heart as I was reading oh, through this. That's so true. She takes such good care of him, and then I wrote this in my Kindle, but didn't, like, add this to the outline anywhere, but does she, does he ever actually take her food, like, when he goes to the plinths, and... Oh, I don't remember. I I know there's times when Ma Plinth drops off breakfast, or drops Mm -hmm. off, like, food for the family, but when... I've noticed, like, Tigress will, when there's ever extra food, she brings it for the whole family. Snow doesn't, I can't remember, I could be completely wrong, but Snow doesn't ever bring her food. He just eats it or takes it for him for later. I do think there's one spot that he does take her food, but I think it's because Ma specifically says, bring this back to your family. I don't think it's out of the goodness of his heart necessarily. Mm. I don't remember when that is, though. We should go back and look. Yeah, for sure. It's just so interesting that he, she is so selfless, Mm. but he can't even, like, bring her food from school. Yeah. Or stuff like that. Like, we don't ever get that. Yeah. That I can remember. The next quotable we have is from chapter 15, and it's a quote 
in Coriolanus's point of view, and it says the right thing to do, Coriolanus realized that this was what had always defined Sejanus's actions, his determination to do the right thing. Ooh. And I don't remember if we talked about this in part one. I wrote it in my Kindle, but I have in my notes that so many of Coriolanus's actions are the result of wanting to do the opposite of Sejanus. And I would argue that almost all of Coriolanus's actions are determined by what he thinks are expected by others or what he wants others to perceive, right? We know that he, like, I, I'm thinking back to, I think this is chapter one, but he is, like, rushing to the school. And then when he gets within, like, a block of it, he slows down to give mm. the perception that he's, like, not rushing. He's, like supposed to be there and he's on time and all those things so all, most of his actions are either to help that perception for other people or to do something that he thinks another person wants him to do but Sejanus was motivated by doing what he thought was the right thing and regardless of what others thought right mm. and I just I love that because I just oh, I love Sejanus. I fell in love Sejanus. with him, too, in this stretch of chapters. Ugh, what a guy. All right. So I finally made it out of chapter 11 for my quotables. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so in chapter 16, after Coriolanus retrieves Sejanus from the arena and he is back at the lab with Dr. Gall, she asks, who are human beings? Because who we are determines the type of governing we need. Later on, I hope you can reflect and be honest with yourself about what you learned tonight. So this is after Snow, Snow kills Bobbin, and I feel like Snow really has a switch turned on here. Like, he realizes, mm -hmm. like, his strength and his power that he holds and how he can, how it felt to do what he did to Bobbin, and... As he's working through this super life-changing event, this quote from Dr. Gall feels like it will be incredibly important to future Stone, and we will definitely see the, him work through this throughout the book, and I just, you see, like, what we talked about from chapter 11, like, Coriolanus is very influenced by Dr. Gall and her teaching, mm -hmm. so this is just another, a point to that. Moving on to chapter 18. Um, the quote is from, I believe this is from Lucky, and it says, how's the weather looking District 12, Jubilee? They've got snow, Lucky. Snow in July, Jubilee? Coriolanus snow. And <laughs> I just had to bring this back because they did, in fact, make uh, snow into a meme and throw him in the weather report albeit in a positive light, but it still did happen, and I just had to point that out, that we got a meme. <laughs> we got a meme. Let's go. If you've made a meme like this, please send it to us. We'd love to see it. Please. We love memes. Most of our conversations are memes or reels or gifs. Yes. I and we just like. send it back and forth. It's a fun time. <laughs> All right, so our final one is in chapter 20. So Snow is daydreaming about Lucy Gray winning the Hunger Games and the life that they would have together in the capital. This is all hypothetical in his own daydream world. And he's like dreaming of how the, she will work at Pluribus's club and he will be in university. They're just going to have this amazing life together and the capital's going to let her stay and all this all this other stuff. He is dreaming high and that's okay. But <laughs> he thinks this to himself. But the point was he got to keep her and he wanted to keep her safe and close at hand. So as he's daydreaming, we get to see the softer side of snow here. But then we have this huge red flag. Have you seen the TikToks or reels of this guy who just comes in the woods yes. <laughs> running around with the red flag? I love him. <laughs> this is like this is where he would run in because while he wants to live a life with Lucy Gray, and you can tell here that he cares about her truly more deeply than a tribute. He also 
just red flag red flag red flag i wrote it in my kindle even so we've seen this in quite a few other places throughout the book so far where he says he got to keep her sir excuse me (laughs) she isn't just like a book that you get to keep now or like that your friend had that gave you this book no she is a girl a woman we're gonna call her a woman because she's been through a lot who has a actual life outside of him in district 12 and when she wins she will want to return to that life and he's the whole book so far he's thought of other things about her being his and other red flaggy things which is just yikes no (laughs) snow we we don't control women here uh no they're not thank you (laughs) red flag red flag red flag i just think this is like like snow please we you're supposed to be a gentleman i mean you're not but this villain origin story but i'm like boy yeah bad ma plinth would slap him in the face if she heard those thoughts but we had a few other notable parts that we just haven't touched on quite yet that we'll probably dive deeper into during part three. Um, the first one we did touch on a little bit was that Reaper was covering the tributes with the flag. Again, one of my favorite parts of the books. Just super impactful. Brought me to tears. Just ugh, love him. Just love that he uses the Panem flag to cover the tributes that died because of them. The second is Lucy Gray wins. Like, I know we didn't really touch on that too much, <laughs> but she does win. Woohoo. Yay. Yep. And then Snow becoming a peacekeeper. That's a huge life change, huge story change. I feel like when you're like doing a U turn in your car, I felt like that's what happened. I was like, whoa. We go from Academy Snows to now we're going to be seeing Peacekeeper Snow. Like, what? So we'll definitely be digging into that in part three but just wanted to point out some really notable parts from part two so i just want to quickly say that earlier in the book or earlier in the podcast i said that there were not a lot of things that surprised me about this book so far snow becoming a peacekeeper is did surprise me however Mm. part three then literally the name of part three is the peacekeeper and I am the person who reads through title um, or tables of contents <laughs> before I read a book because I want to know how it's broken up. I want to know how many chapters are in there. Mm. And that spoiled that portion Ugh. for me. Because Suzanne. Ugh. I know. But I was like, if I had not read that, I would have been like, oh, my goodness. That would have been so surprising. But because I read through the table of contents, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I get it. I... I could, I didn't, like, I saw that, and I saw that, like, on TikToks and stuff, like, not that he was a peacekeeper, but that they were broken up into three parts, mm-hmm. and it was named the peacekeeper, but it, like, went, whoop, right over my head. <laughs> so, I guess I either forgot or didn't care enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this next section is a psychological analysis portion of one of our characters, Today, we are going to be analyzing Dr. Gall, and oh my goodness, what a character, right? I can't wait. I'd like to start off by saying that Dr. Gall is probably my favorite character so far, and today I'm going to do some psychological analysis on her and see what we can find out now. I'd like to start off by saying that I have both my bachelor's and my master's degrees in psychology, and I'm working on my PhD. As any Psych 101 professor can tell you, listening to this, taking Psych 101, reading a psychology book does not mean you can start diagnosing your friends and family. That's not how this works. (laughs) Leave that to the professionals. That's why they have to go through so much schooling. That can be very dangerous and can affect you and the people that you are maybe diagnosing. Mental health is real and everyone... I fully believe that everyone should go to therapy at least once in their life. It's helpful. It's beneficial. Getting that third person, having that safe space is a very important thing. Mm -hmm. With all that said, 
diagnosing little literary characters is wholly different <laughs> and this is meant to be a fun activity i had so much fun digging into this and i hope that you all have fun listening so here we go first let's talk about what we know about her she is the head game maker and mastermind behind the Capitals Experimental Weapons Division, which she could have only held for a maximum of 10 years. This is the 10th annual Hunger Games um, before she was the head of the Capitals Experimental Weapons Division. She was an obstetrician. And we get this quote from Coriolanus saying, how awful Coriolanus thought to have you be the first person in the world a baby sees. <laughs> and that just like cracked me up when I was uh when I was uh reading that I loved that part that made me laugh so hard <laughs> we know she is unnerving to be around the book notes that Coriolanus had been on a field trip into her lab when he was younger and that he had been unnerved by her since childhood we know she hurts animals um in that same field trip she um, this is going to get a little graphic, so if you have a queasy stomach, please skip forward about 15 seconds. When Snow is on the field trip, it's noted that she was melting the flesh of the lab rat with a laser. Um, we also know that she turns animals into mutts. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily hurting the animals, but for our purposes, we're going to go with that. She also shows a lack of care about people. She seems unconcerned when Clemencia is bitten. She doesn't really care if she's going to be okay after the snake bite. Marcus being strung up as a statement at the beginning of the games was most likely her idea. She sends in Coriolanus to get Sejanus and when he is in the arena, not really caring about Coriolanus or Sejanus' safety. And she seems more worried about changing his mind and his thought processes than actually making sure he gets out of the arena alive. Mm. She is unpredictable. The assistants transporting the snakes in the elevator say she'll go ballistic when they were trying to remember if the snakes were fed or not. And that was they actually like left the snakes there because they were so concerned that she was like going to go nuts. She is focused and intentional one minute and then disengaged the next. When she's teaching, she's talking and making all the sense in the world. And then the next she's talking to her rabbit and doesn't engage with the people in the class. <laughs> We're going to throw it back to Carrie's favorite quote and back to my mutts. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. She loves rhymes. The quote is, hippity hoppity, how is the zoo? You fell in the monkey cage and your tribute did too. <laughs> this is um, so unhinged but after looking at all of those things right we have one two three four five six six ish things that kind of point us in a direction um i believe that dr gall could be classified as having antisocial personality disorder so antisocial personality disorder falls under the classification of a personality disorder, and the common characteristics of this disorder are, one, ignoring rules and or the law, two, manipulating or deceiving people, three, exploiting people for their own benefit, and four, lack of a remorse for their actions. This is especially dangerous because people with antisocial personality disorder are at a high risk of causing harm to themselves or to others because of those things. They're manipulative, they exploit others, and they have a lack of remorse. Mm. So I'd like to talk more about Dr. Gall and what she does because this is what settled the diagnosis for me. This woman, I said earlier that Dr. Gall is probably my favorite character so far in the book, right? This woman has some of the best one-liners that made me think, right, more than any other character in this book. Just from chapter 11, we're going back to chapter 11, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> um, we have, quote, wars are won with heads, not hearts, and, quote, a little thought can save a lot of lives, both of which I think are very intentional quotes in the series and go back to kind of what we've been talking about with Dr. Gall shaping snow's thought processes and intentions in the series i've talked about this a little bit above but she goes from rhyming and chaotic to wise and understanding basically 
at the flip of a switch. And this is one of the things that is typical of somebody with antisocial personality disorder. They use wit, flattery, and charm to manipulate, lie, or deceive others for personal gain and or enjoyment. I think Dr. Gall is constantly using wit. And when I initially think of wit, I think of like, oh, you're witty, you're funny, you're like, whatever. But wit is actually defined as using keen intelligence. So I think Dr. Gall is constantly using that keen intelligence that she has and flattery with Coriolanus to like get him on her side a little bit. Now, something else I want to highlight is that according to clevelandclinic.org, developing personality disorders can develop because of genetics, trauma, and cultural factors, among other things, but I want to focus on those three today. I obviously can't speak into the genetics of Dr. Gall, so we're going to kind of cross that one off our list, but I think I can speak into the trauma and cultural factors that would have led her to develop this issue potentially. I would argue that going through a war is traumatic, right? So if you see like soldiers have a lot of PTSD because it is traumatic, it is a traumatic experience. I would argue that going through medical school could be seen as a traumatic experience for some people. Being under that pressure for such a long period of time, knowing that if you do fail a class, like you're going to be out and this is your dream and all of those things and getting a lack of sleep, like that's a traumatic experience. So I think we could put a check mark next to trauma for her. I also think in this instance, though, the culture here would be the biggest contributing factor. This culture of Pan Am encourages doing what you can to climb to the top, exploiting people for personal gain, and a lack of remorse for actions. I mean, that is all over the place, right? And I mean, the Hunger Games alone is encouraging all three of those things, and that's one act of act of this culture. It and that is not a solitary act, right? It's constantly throughout the whole thing. So I would also argue we can put a check mark next to cultural factors as well. So all of those things, I think, like, I had so much fun digging into this because I did so much research here. But I do think that Dr. Gall does have some kind of personality disorder. And I'm we're going with antisocial personality disorder. I love this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so all of this leads into our favorite quotes, and this is our favorite quotes for the whole part, too, and this is outside of our quotables. My favorite quote from part two actually comes from Dr. Gall, and it says, a little thought can save a lot of lives, and I think that's so such an interesting thing coming from her because one of the trademarks of her is that she doesn't care about lives but she does say that a little thought can save a lot of lives and I think that's something that you know we can learn from right we can learn like a little thought can save a lot of lives like I think about like seatbelts in a car right that little bit of thought can that little bit of thought for manufacturers has saved countless lives Um, and I think throughout that throughout throughout our society, that's a constant theme that we can rely on that a little thought can save a lot of lives. So So uh, yeah, that's my favorite quote. Carrie, what's yours? My favorite quote is, I already said it, but well, you know what they say, the show's not over until the Mockingjay sings. And I think I'm going to argue that I can say it again because Snow also quotes it later to Dean Mm -hmm. Highbottom and I think Dr. Gall, but he... I just love that, like, the show's not over until the Mockingjay sings, because I think we get to see that in the trilogy, too, where mm-hmm. we have the the whistle, the dun-dun-dun-dun, and that, like, mm-hmm. is copied by the Mockingjay constantly, so, mm-hmm. uh, just my favorite quote, loved it. So that leads us into snow contributions to the games that we know and love. I will go ahead and give a little caveat here. These aren't really his contributions, (laughs) but I think because they are foundational to what happened in the trilogy and they started when he was participating in the mentorship and in the games, 
in the 10th annual, they are part of his contributions or just contributions in general from the 10th Hunger Games is probably what we should have named this section, but that's okay. (laughs) I think he has some contributions here. So the first one is notifying other tributes, which tributes are left and how many of the tributes are left. So again, I cannot fully give this to Stowe as his contribution, but I still wanted to bring this to light because I think it's foundational to what happened in Katniss's Hunger Games, where every day the names and faces of the tributes were shown in the arena on who was lost. In chapter 20, Lucy Gray is counting the amount of fallen tributes in Reaper's created morgue, and Snow notes that she's trying to figure out who's left in the games. Then Lepidus jokes, maybe we should put it up on the scoreboard, which Snow replies, I'm sure the tributes would find that very helpful. Seriously, that's a good idea. So we know this idea is later implemented through what we saw in the trilogy, where there mm-hmm. you had the the Panem anthem, I guess, and pops up, and then Lucky says who's gone or not Lucky. Oh my gosh, Caesar Flickerman. <laughs> Woo, wrong Flickerman. But we know that they are notified throughout the games. Yeah. And this is a very strategic way for everyone to know who is left in the game. So I think that's a very good contribution. And it helps the viewers. Yeah. And then I'm just going to point out strategy again. We talked about this in the last episode, but at a point in chapter 20, it is just Lucy Gray and Reaper who remain alive in the arena. And Reaper is experiencing severe heat stroke. Since Reaper has been protecting his morgue covered by the flag, she decides she is going to wear him out and begins to undo the flag off and on until to try to get him to run around, which eventually is his demise because he does have severe heat stroke and it's very hot. So we're noted by Lucky. Thank you, Lucky Weatherman. Mm-hmm. This reminded me so much of the little spook trick that Katniss and Rue play on the allies that were holding all of the supplies in the first Hunger Games book. So, again, not giving this to Snow, but more to the idea that strategy can be implemented into the games, which is more entertaining, too, because then you see, like, those group of allies struggling to find Katniss and Rue, and they're seeing the smoke, and then they're running there, leaving the weapons and supplies open, which did help that other tribute. I forget which one ran. Oh, Foxface. Foxface, thank you. So again, strategy you just see, you saw this a few times probably in this 10th annual Hunger Games, but I think Mm -hmm. just Lucy Gray's outright strategy where she's not actually killing Reaper, but causing him to die so she could win. Yeah. And also kind of like as a sympathy thing, like he's already, he's struggling. So let's just like make it quicker so she can get out of there too. Like it's. I think it goes both ways. Yeah. So I just thought about this. Ooh, I love that. But do you think that the trackers that are injected into the tributes are because of this or like the idea started here because Snow doesn't know where Lucy Gray is in the arena for a good portion of the time? Yeah, that's a good point. And, like, he doesn't want to give away her position by sending her food and water. And they have to come out into the arena where the cameras are to be seen. But that's not the case for, like, the the original trilogy. Like, they yeah. have trackers put in their arms. That's a great point. I love that. I literally just thought about that. That's that's probably, like, one of the reasons they did that. And then they can know which cameras to put in places and... Yeah. Yeah. That was probably, I could definitely see Snow's hand in that. Yeah. Again, listeners, if you have any other contributions that you think Snow or any of those characters that we met in part one and two that you noticed contributed something to the games that we knew in the trilogy, please let us know on social media or tomesandtropespod at gmail.com. I'm plugging that constantly. <laughs> All right, so now we are on to our weekly recs. Um, Again, at the end of each podcast, we're just going to let you know a product that each of us love. We do this in our friendship already, so we just thought we would share them with you. 
I'm not a child, I promise. But it's a star <laughs> projector galaxy like light thing. And it just mm. like it's very like it has like this green laser that looks like stars and then it's like a galaxy color. You can change the colors to like red, green, white, blue. Ugh. It's so chill for like nighttime and it just lights up our whole room. I love it. So That's awesome. definitely put the link in the show notes. Again, we're not sponsored by this, but we just love these items. So this is true. My weekly wreck is um they are press-on nails from Impress Color. They Ooh. are Impress Color press-on manicure nails. There's no glue needed and they have like this little like pack in there. They have like the alcohol wipe and then uh, they have a little file in here like in the container and a manicure stick and these I used for the first time on a vacation last year and they lasted me a whole week and even after the week like I there was only one nail that was loose it was really it was my 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 thumbnail that like came loose if that had not come off I bet the rest of them would have lasted still probably another couple days to a week like they are solid so I highly recommend these. I started using them for um, like special events. Sometimes when you have your nails done, you just feel like super special. But I love them. There's 30 nails that come in each kit. And because of that, I can get two manicures out of these. Like I can adjust oh. the sizes as as needed. Some of them look a little better than others. I'm not going to lie. But in a pinch, you can definitely get two out of these. And I highly recommend them. I love them. Like I said, I use them for special occasions all the time. Well, thank you so much again, listeners, for tuning in. We will see you next week <laughs> or next episode. We'll see you next episode for part three. Where yes. We're finishing the book. And so come with anything you want to talk about. Like send us some ideas if you want us to talk about something in particular. Yes. Or any Let theories you have. Mm. Yep. Thank you so much again for tuning in and have a great week. We'll see you next week. And may the odds be ever in your favor.